wouldn't mind taking the word of God with me this evening and turning to the prophecy of Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, if you're Northern Irish. Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3. Now Habakkuk prophesied during difficult days in Judah. Now during the time that Habakkuk prophesied, the wicked king Jehoiakim had come to the throne. And the end was very near for Judah. Judah was about to go into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And so when Habakkuk came to prophesy to Judah, he came at a very difficult time. A time when there was great corruption in Judah and there is almost certain doom. And really, if most of us were in Habakkuk's position, we would have left Judah to their fate and been very happy to walk away and say, well, you get what you deserve. But Habakkuk was very different. We come to Habakkuk chapter 3. The first two words says, a prayer. Habakkuk instead of just leaving Judah to their fate, so to speak, of destruction. He prayed and earnestly sought God for mercy. He prayed in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. He knows what's coming. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath, remember mercy. This is Habakkuk's prayer for Judah. He knew that judgment was impending. He knew that their corruption was deep. And it seemed absolutely impossible that anything less than their total destruction in Babylon and captivity for 70 years would happen. But he prayed. But he prayed. Lord, will you have mercy? Will you in wrath remember mercy? By the way, this is something we can pray for our nation. In wrath remember mercy. But how could he pray for revival when Judah was so corrupt? When there was not one token for good, not one sign and the landscape, so to speak, of Judah, that any of those people had any true spiritual thoughts to move away from their sin and to repent and come back to Jehovah. When Jehoiakim was full of wickedness, it was because Habakkuk had a vision of God. In verses 3 through 6, Habakkuk remembers the glory of God that was manifested on Mount Sinai. He says, God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of His praise, and His brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of His hand, and there was the hiding of His power. Before Him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at His feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. It was this vision of God in His power and in His glory that energized the faith and prayers of Habakkuk to lift up his eyes and cry to the God with whom nothing is impossible. That God would revive Judah, even now. When Habakkuk says God came from Teman, from Mount Paran, we need to understand that Teman is where Mount Paran was located. Um, this mountain was adjacent to Sinai. And as I said earlier, this vision of God, was Habakkuk going back and remembering what Moses had spoke about in Exodus, when God revealed Himself in glory on the top of Sinai when the law was given. 
And it was this manifestation of God's glory on Sinai that was the grounds of Habakkuk's prayer for the impossible. In verse 4, Habakkuk says he had horns coming out of his hand. Now, this actually speaks of beams of light coming from him. These horns would have been beams of light coming from the Lord. Matthew Henry describes this as rays of glory darting forth around him. Can you imagine the sight it must have been to behold God in the full display, not the full, excuse me, the display of his glory on Mount Sinai. When he is literally clothed with beams of glory, beams of light all around him. Can you imagine that sight? But what is really staggering about this verse, verse 4, is what comes next. Habakkuk says this, And there was the hiding of his power. Now what does that mean? It means this. And this is staggering. In that display of God's glory... It's so far paled in comparison to the fullness of his power that even that display on Sinai could be called the hiding of his power. And so great is the power of God that Habakkuk said, When you, Lord, were displayed in your glory on the top of Sinai, when beams of light like rays were fluttering around you in such majesty and glory that nobody could ascend Sinai but Moses and Aaron, there was actually the hiding of your power. And what we can infer from this is something that we have been studying about God. God is infinite. His power is infinite. His power is limitless. Not even a display of His glory such as Sinai can begin to begin to display the fullness of what God's power really is. So much so that Sinai was merely the hiding of His power according to to Habakkuk. And we've been speaking about God and how he is infinite over the past couple of weeks. We've talked about how God is infinite with relation to time, he's eternal. He's infinite with relation to space, he's omnipresent. He's infinite with relation to knowledge, he's omniscient. But he's also infinite with relation to his ability, to his power, he's omnipotent. His power is so great that as Habakkuk said, a display on Sinai was merely its hiding. This is a truth that always gives the church unshakable confidence and boldness as he gave Habakkuk. It is when the people of God are gripped by the truth of the omnipotence of their God that they can pray big prayers in very dark days. As one man said, the fear of the greater dispels the fear of the lesser. And when your heart and mind are gripped with the omnipotent God, all the so-called opposition to God's work will pale in comparison. Isn't this what gripped the heart of Martin Luther, the great reformer? as he stood in the Reformation against insurmountable odds, illustrated in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Luther could stand for God's truth 
and defy all of the odds and the hordes of Satan against him and the cause of the Reformation because he knew, I don't confide in my strength, but in the arm of the Omnipotent One. It is vital that we understand and are gripped by the truth of God's omnipotence. So would you consider with me this evening the omnipotence of God? In the first place, we need to define the omnipotence of God. Before we can define the omnipotence of God fully, we need to think about what is the power of God. The power of God is simply this. It is God's ability to act. God is called the living God. He is a God who acts. He is a God who is animated. He is a God who is alive. He is the living God. And the nature of the power of God can also be understood more fully when we think about it in contrast to the power of created things. For example, the power of any created thing is derived. It has been given to it from another source, but God's power is not derived from any source. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 62 in verse 11, Power belongeth unto God. Fundamentally, power and ultimately, power belongs to God alone. Every creature derives their ability to act, their power, from God. But God does not derive His power from anyone. Power belongs unto God. Also, the power of created things only lasts for a short time. But Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 teaches us that even His eternal power and Godhead, etc., teaching us that God's power is eternal. It never ends. The power of created things changes. Sometimes we wake up and we have more strength in our bodies than we did the day before. But God never wakes up weary. He is a God who does not faint and is not weary. The power of created things has limitations, but God's power knows no limits and knows no bounds. The word omnipotent comes from two Latin words, omni, as we've mentioned before, which means all, and potentia, which means power. And this word omnipotent is actually used in Revelation 19 and verse 6 in our King James Version. In Revelation 19 and verse 6, the Bible says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of many thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The Lord God omnipotent. And the word translated omnipotent in Revelation 19 and verse 6 is a tremendous Greek word, pantocrator, which speaks of God or Christ as the ultimate sovereign, the absolute ruler of all. And it's translated many other times in the book of Revelation as the Almighty. As one of the Puritans said, there are many mighties, but there is only one Almighty. And the Almighty is God. The Almighty is Christ, the Father and the Spirit. As far as power is concerned, God is the ultimate. He is the apex. That is what is being communicated by omnipotence. One theologian defined omnipotence this way. God can do anything and everything He wills to do merely by willing it, since nothing can restrain Him and nothing is too hard for Him. But as we further define God's omnipotence, we need to divide this discussion into two sections briefly. First of all, we think about this fact. God can do anything. And we call this God's absolute power. God's absolute power. But I need to clarify this because it's very easy to slip into error with regards to thinking about the fact that God can do anything. Perhaps the best way is to use a common sermon illustration, which is wrong. And the sermon illustration goes something like this. There's a little boy sitting next to a professor on an airplane, and the professor asks the little boy, young man, if you can tell me something God can do, I'll give you an apple. 
And the boy says, if you can tell me something God can't do, I'll give you a whole barrel of apples. Something like that. Everybody goes, oh, then that, that's, a, that's a great, great illustration. If you can tell me something God can't do. And the professor says, oh, I can't tell you anything God can't do. But that's absolutely false. There are many things God cannot do. God cannot lie. The Bible says that God is not a man that he should repent. Titus makes it clear that God is not a God who can lie. There are things that God cannot do. God cannot make a square circle. God cannot create a contradiction. God cannot cause himself to cease to be. God can do everything that is in concert with his nature. But he cannot do anything that is not in concert with his nature. But because God is perfect, if he were to do anything that is not in concert with his nature, he would cease to be God. God can do anything and everything he wills to do. So with this caveat in mind, we can think about the absolute power of God and look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 27, for example. The Bible says, And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. And this verse, remember, is in response to the question of the disciples, who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, there are things that are not possible with men, but they are possible with God. In fact, everything that is in concert with God's nature is possible. Impossibility is implausible when we think about God. And brothers and sisters, when you think about souls that need to be saved, I want you to hear the words of Christ. With God, all things are possible. It is a sinful thing to allow doubt to get a foothold in our minds to where we become debilitated by fear and discouragement, thinking that no matter how much we preach, no matter what we do, nobody can be saved today. The people are just so hard. You want to know something? A man who is a sinner is dead. And the man who grew up in church who's lost is just as dead as a man who grew up in a Muslim country. They're both dead. And it takes the same amount of power to save both. God is able to do anything and He can save anyone. And we need to get our, our, our minds, our eyes off of the hardness of people, off of the difficulty of our day, off of the difficulty of society and the things that they're saying and doing and understand, with God, all things are possible. We're talking about the omnipotent God. When a preacher preaches who believes this in Reformed theology. He doesn't have to fear. He doesn't have to cower behind the pulpit and say, oh, I hope that I don't offend people and turn them away. I hope that the arguments I use are good enough to convince. I want to convince people. But at the end of the day, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And God Almighty has been pleased in history to attend the preaching of His Word with power and to save souls in very dark days. Are you to tell me that today's darker than the Reformation days? When the Pope ruled in tyrannical power over almost all of creation? Facing persecution at every turn? And God moved. God is always able. Nothing is impossible to God. Who then can be saved, Jesus? 
With men it's impossible, but not with God. With God, all things are possible. Hallelujah. There's no impossibility with God. Hudson Taylor said this, There are three stages to every great work of God. First, it is impossible. Then it is difficult. Then it is done. God delights in impossibilities because impossibilities are opportunities to demonstrate His omnipotence. Impossibilities are opportunities to demonstrate His omnipotence. And far from the people of God running away from difficult situations and from impossible, seemingly impossible situations, they should rejoice that they have the opportunity to be used by God to demonstrate His power. Because God is able. In Genesis chapter 18, verses 13 through 14, the Lord said unto Abraham, Wherefore did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I of a surety bear a child which am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the time appointed, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Believer, are we guilty of when we see God's promises laughing like Sarah? I know I am. We read promises in God's Word, perhaps a promise like Mark chapter 11, verses 22 through 24. Jesus said, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. What about Romans 8 verse 28? It's hard to believe. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and are the called according to His purpose. How many promises in God's Word do we read and in our souls we laugh with Sarah? <laughs> Lord, Lord, really? You can't, I mean, you can't do that. Sarah, I'm old. You can't, I can't have a child. Look how old I am. And she had to be rebuked by the Lord. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? You answer the question. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Can you think of any situation? Can you think of any difficulty? Can you think of any opposition? Can you think of anything that's too hard for God? There is absolutely nothing too hard for God. Nothing. So whatever you desire, go to God in prayer. Claim His promise. Let's not pray like we're praying to a weak God. Let's pray like we're praying to the omnipotent God. The God with whom all things are possible. Pray big prayers. Have you ever thought of Gideon? How could Gideon pray for the sun to stand still? Because Gideon believed in a big God. That's why. And we need to have our hearts gripped by the truth that God is the God with whom nothing is impossible. But then we also move from God's absolute power, God can do anything, to God's what we call ordinate power, or what God does. Now, God can do many things that He does not choose to do. And theologians have distinguished between God's absolute power, what God can do, and His ordinate power, what God has ordained He will do. God does not do everything He can do. But the way He brings everything to pass is twofold. He does things either through the word of His power or by the means of something He's created. Sometimes the Lord simply speaks in order to accomplish His will. And the amazing thing about this is, the Lord Jesus did this. You know, the Lord in, in Genesis 1, He spake, let there be light. He spake, and the earth was formed in all the universe. And the Lord Jesus speaks and creates. In Matthew 7, verse 3, Jesus put forth His hand and touched Him, saying, I will be thou clean. 
And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. That's a proof of the divinity of Jesus Christ. You don't find anyone in Scripture by the spoken word, merely the spoken word, healing or creating. This is only Christ's attribute because he is the Almighty Christ. Sometimes he uses means. He uses people and things to accomplish his will. But ultimately, power belongeth unto God. And so there we have the definition of God's omnipotence. And then we want to look at, second, the omnipotence of God displayed. The omnipotence of God displayed. God has displayed his omnipotence in three specific ways. First, through creation, second, through providence, and third, through redemption. In the first place, he has displayed his power through creation. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. He created the heavens and the earth with his power, with his stretched out arm, a symbol of his displayed power. He was omnipotent in his creation of heaven and earth, displaying his great power. Imagine what kind of power it would take to create this earth. Imagine what kind of power it would take to create the mountains and the vast expanses of the ocean, the forests, the deserts, the polar ice caps, the jungles of South America, the whales, the lions, the fish of the sea, human beings. Imagine the power that would be necessary to, with one word, create all of that. But what of the universe? To understand something of the immensity of this universe, our Earth is the fifth largest planet in our solar system. I used to teach space and earth science, so bear with me here. Our Earth is the fifth largest planet in our solar system, which has eight planets, not including the sun. But the sun is so large that over one million Earths could fit inside of it. But then if we go out a little bit more from our solar system, we recognize that our solar system is a part of a galaxy. Our solar system is a part of the Milky Way galaxy. So although our solar system has eight planets and a sun that can fit one million Earths inside of it, the Milky Way is said to have over 200 billion stars and around 100 billion planets. And then think about this. The Milky Way galaxy is just one galaxy in the universe which is said to contain about 170 billion galaxies. And that's only in the observable universe. We can't even see beyond that. We don't even have an inkling of what the immensity of the universe is. And in Genesis, the Bible says, and he made the stars also. That in one word, with one spoken word, the almighty God spake and the entirety of the universe came into existence out of non-existence. Out of nothing in a moment. Such is the display of God's omnipotence and His power. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 33, verses 6 through 8, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of His mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as an heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. What is our response to the omnipotence of God displayed in creation? Stand in awe. You want to think of something that is ridiculous. 
We find that in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. What are you, mere man? In comparison with the God that has spoken 170 billion and more galaxies into existence, who spans the universe with His hand, what are you? Yes, man should stand in awe before the Almighty God and fear before God. Some people will rebel against God and reject God and puff out their chests and act like they have the ability to stand up to God. Let me say lovingly, you have no idea who you are dealing with. You have no comprehension of who you are dealing with. There is not even a comparison I can give you. Imagine the ridiculousness of the sight of a little ant trying to stop a tsunami wave from crashing into a city. This is not even the beginning of what it is for a man to try to stand against God. He will, he will rule and reign. He came as a babe in a manger in humility, but he will return and he will put all of the nations and every man and woman and child under his subjugation. And there is not one human being that will be able to stand up to God. All the armies and the nations of the earth are nothing in comparison with him. And if you live a life in rebellion against God, there is no greater foolishness. There is nothing more mad, insane, crazy, and ridiculous than a man who is a worm, a created being, to try to stand up against the Almighty God. It is better you bow to Him now than you bow to Him on that day. It is better you bow to Him today when He offers peace. Jesus comes not now in a flaming chariot of wrath and power with the 10,000 legions of angels. But today He offers peace. With one hand He stretches out His his mercy, and he says, come to me. And with the other, he holds back his wrath. But one day, both hands will drop. There will be no mercy offered. There will be no peace offered. There will be no grace offered. There will be no gospel preached. And the wrath of God will come like a tsunami wave, like an almighty flood, and it will drown the earth in wrath. And God will be righteous in what he's done because we're monsters of iniquity. And we better not forget that. We're not victims of other people's wrongs. We are monsters of iniquity. We are the criminals. We are the culprits. We deserve His wrath. He's righteous in what He's doing. And what He's done in Jesus Christ to offer us mercy is an unbelievable grace. And if we don't flee to Him now, we will bow before Him one day. God has displayed His omnipotence in creation. God has also displayed His omnipotence in providence. Now, providence is that work by which God preserves and governs His creatures and all of their actions. He preserves everything. He upholds everything. Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says that Christ upholds all things by the word of His power. Colossians 1 verse 17 tells us that all things consist in Jesus Christ. And the one who walked the streets of Galilee, all things consist in him. He sustains everything in the universe, every square inch of existence by his power he upholds. But he also governs all things. He is the sovereign, he is the ruler who works all things according to Ephesians 1 and verse 11. After the counsel of his own will, 
all nations, all individuals, all forces of nature, down to the minutia of creation, are all governed by his controlling power. God displays his omnipotence and his providence. The third and last, he displays his omnipotence in redemption. The entire work of redemption is a display of the power of God. And this is such a vast subject. Certainly this whole subject is so vast. It was such a struggle to know what not to include. And when we consider redemption, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is salvation itself. In Ephesians 1, verses 19, 19 through 20, Paul ascribes our believing on Christ, our salvation, our being born again unto saving faith and repentance to the mighty power of God. Paul writes, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power? Which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul says this, God wrought great power when He rose up Jesus from the dead. And that same power which He wrought in Christ flows to all of His people so that everyone who is in union with Him is also full, filled excuse me, with the power of the resurrected Christ so that they awaken out of spiritual death to spiritual life. And they have a spiritual resurrection. And they come to life and they're animated. Now they're living. Now they're alive. Not to sin, but to God, to righteousness, to holiness. They're not servants and slaves of sin anymore. But now they're slaves to righteousness. As Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 6. Chapter 6 verse 8 says, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. This is the great truth of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. We have been given salvation by the working of the mighty power of God. God has actually created in us a new creature. You say, well, God's not creating anything today. He is. He's creating new creatures every time someone's saved. And this displays His omnipotence. Because not only did He call something into existence out of non-existence, but He called life out of death. He called holiness out of unholiness. He called purity out of corruption. That's the display of God's omnipotence in the work of salvation. But not only is God's power the cause of our salvation, but also our preservation. First Peter 1 and verse 5 says, Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Brothers and sisters, we do not keep ourselves. We are kept. And we are kept by the power of God through faith. Your faith, your faith might become weak. The fire of your zeal and faith for God might grow dim, but believer, it will never snuff out because it is not kept by you. It is kept by the power of God. He upholds you. Nothing in hell or heaven or earth can undo what God has done in salvation. You are upheld and preserved forever by His power. Is there any man who has greater power than God? Is there anything that has greater power than God? No, then nothing can take you from His hand. Nothing. You're kept by the power of God. And the only reason why we can obey God, the only reason why we persevere not only in faith, but persevere in obedience, and we're not perfect, but we live a life patterned after holiness. Why? Because God works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. 
And Jude 24 says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. The key here is he is able. I'm not able. He is able. And so as the church lifts up their eyes and looks unto Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith, they are filled with strength. They are kept by the power of God to obey Him. And thus God preserves His people throughout their pilgrimage on earth and through eternity. The power of God not only saves, but keeps us. But then, lastly, I want you to see the power of God displayed, the omnipotence, excuse me, of God displayed in the cross. Now, however great these displays of God have been in creation and providence, salvation, nothing compares to the cross. This is a subject that far outstrips my ability. This is the penultimate display of God's omnipotence, surpassing creation completely. And this might seem odd. You say, somebody says, wait a second. You're saying that a crucified man is a display of omnipotence? 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 4 says that Christ was crucified through weakness. Oh, is it the weakness of Christ the opposite of the power of Christ? I mean, the cross was an instrument of torture. Christ hung there naked, shamed. He was exhausted from loss of blood and from the shock perhaps that came to his body. His back was torn into ribbons. He was far from powerful. How can you say that the omnipotence of God was displayed in what looks like the impotence of a dying man? Well, he was not merely man, he was with a God man. The first thing I want you to consider, have you ever thought about the restraining of God's power? Do you imagine, no doubt, as the first soldier whipped the Son of God, the thousands of legions of angels were chomping at the bit to rush down to earth to destroy the man who did that and to exalt and vindicate the Son of God. And yet Christ used his own power to restrain the legions of angels. Have you ever thought about how in Pilate's Hall, when Christ was spat on, spit in his face, the face of the Son of God, the one whom the Father loved, the one whom the Father rejoiced in, how the Father burned with wrath, how the Father burned with anger, as a mere man spat in the face of the Son of God, and yet the Father held back his wrath. It took great power. You can imagine as Christ was being nailed to the cross. It would have been effortless for him to not only come down from the cross as they taught him, come down from the cross, we'll believe you. It would have been effortless for him. All he said was, I am in the garden of Gethsemane, and they fell back prostrate on their backs. And yet he restrained his own power. I submit to you that power is not only demonstrated in what you do, but what you refuse to do. And the cross was a tremendous display of omnipotence because it shows us what God refuses to do because of his great love. But also, at the cross, God's omnipotence was displayed as Christ bore up and exhausted the wrath of God. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10 says, Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And the word propitiation is simply taken from the word to propitiate, which means appease. Propitiation means a wrath bearer. And when the lamb in the Old Testament or the animal that was offered up was killed and the blood was spilt and that blood was laid at the mercy seat. It was said to appease the wrath of God. Propitiation had happened. God's wrath had fallen symbolically 
on the animal and was no longer going to fall on the people. And Christ is that lamb. On the cross, all of our sins were laid on Christ. They were laid on him, like the man would lay his hands on the head of the animal and confess the sins of the people. Jesus bore all the sins of his people. He was a lamb who was a sacrifice, a substitute. He would have to endure the whole of the wrath of God. God's wrath will be poured out upon men for eternity. Such is his wrath and such is their crime. But in one day, he exhausted the fullness of the infinite stores of God's wrath. Talk about power. There is the God-man absorbing and exhausting all of the wrath of the Father. And he is able to withstand it. And he is able to bear it up. And he is able to rise again in victory and be seated at the right hand of God. That is power. That is an incredible display of omnipotence. The hymn writer and cousin wrote, Jehovah lifted up his rod, O Christ, it fell on thee. Thou wast sore stricken of thy God. There's not one stroke for me. Thy tears, thy blood beneath it flowed. Thy bruising healeth me. The tempest's awful voice was heard. O Christ, it broke on thee. Thy open bosom was my ward. It bore the storm for me. Thy form was scarred. Thy visage marred. Now cloudless peace for me. The tempest's awful voice. The sky became dark. The Father turned His face upon the man Christ Jesus and poured out His infinite wrath upon Him. And in His open bosom, we were safe from the storm. But Jesus bore it all. Not only did He bear all the wrath of God, in fact, He withstood the onslaught of all of hell on that day. The devil unloaded all the hordes of hell, every temptation, every blasphemy on Christ that day. Everything that the devil could unload on Jesus, he unloaded on the cross. And yet, he bore it all. Mankind unloaded all that they had to offer that day. They spat upon him. They nailed him to a tree. They mocked him. They shamed him. They ripped him with a cat of nine tails. They unloaded all they had on Jesus and yet He bore it all. Death unloaded all it had on Christ. And Christ willingly gave Himself into the jaws of death. And at the cross, He said, Father, into Thy hands I commit My spirit. No man took His soul from Him. He decided to die. After all the wrath and all the hordes of the devil and death and men, he decided to die. Such is his power. And when he went down to the grave, because he was bearing my sin and your sin, he broke the bands of death, he rose up from the grave, alive forevermore. 1 Corinthians 6.14 says, And God hath both raised up the Lord. And will also raise us up by His own power. Far from the cross being simply a display of the weakness of God. The weakness of God was the instrument of the omnipotence of God. The weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. That's the power of Jesus Christ. And again, why did he do this? Here in his love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. He did it for you. He with, withstood all of that. He went through it all. He bore the shame. He bore the pain. He bore death. 
He bore the wrath of God. He withstood all of it for a wretch like you and a wretch like me. And if you don't know him, see his love in the cross. See his love and hear him say, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Look at him, bleeding on the cross. And, and tell me he's not willing to save. Tell me he's not willing to save. There's a wonderful text in the Old Testament that says God is ready to pardon. He's ready to pardon. He's willing. He says, come, just, just come. Just come unto me. Just rest in me. Just call unto me. You see what I have borne? You see what I have done for sinners? Do you see what I've done for sinners? You see how willing I am to save. He is a God not only of great omnipotence and creation and providence and redemption, but his love is omnipotent. We praise him for who he is. Pray that this will be a blessing to our souls. May the Lord impress it on our hearts this evening. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, O oh God, help us to stand in awe before Thee. You are the Almighty. You are worthy of praise. Thank You for what You've done for wretches like us. Lord, we would have been there. We would have spat on Jesus too. We would have whipped Him. We would have nailed Him. We were haters of God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the power, the prince of the power of the air. We're children of wrath. And yet you love us. You call us your treasured possession. We love thee too, Lord. Oh, Lord, it is our chief complaint that our love is weak and faint. Stir us up, Lord, that we might love thee more. Bless thy people tonight. Go with them, Lord, and bless them richly for Jesus' sake. Amen.